Welcome to a special Pride episode of On the Mic, Outspoken LGBTQ Storytelling. I'm Devlin Camp. 51 years ago this month, Inspector Seymour Pine is waiting with his officers in Christopher Park outside the Stonewall Inn. Two officers are undercover inside wearing plain clothes. Pine and his team are waiting for them to exit the bar before they go in to raid, but they've been waiting a while, and now Inspector Pine is getting worried. Pine was sent to raid the Stonewall the previous Tuesday. Manhattan's 1st Division Morals Department has been trying to clean up the city from 35th down to Battery Park. Gay bars, pornography, all sorts of vice, and of course, mafia. The mafia sets up gay bars because they're illegal. Cops can shut them down just for same-sex dancing. Gay and trans people are looking for safe bars to gather, protected from the cops. The mafia pays off the police to leave the gay bars alone. The mob sets up rundown spots with watered-down liquor and overpriced drinks in order to take in a huge profit from queer people. If you've got a sec, Google rainbow capitalism. Cops show up once a week for their payoff from the mafia bar owners, or else they'll raid and shut the place down. Now, in the days of Stonewall, there was a cop on the beat. He got $25 a month. Now, remember, a dozen eggs could have been 50 cents, a loaf of bread was 15 cents, so $25 was a lot of money. Whitey, the cop on 6th Avenue, just loved saying, move on, faggot, and whack you with the back of his le- your legs with his nightstick. The Stonewall is an exceptional spot because Inspector Pine has been sent here to go after the owner, a mafioso nicknamed the Skull. He's been tied to a nationwide blackmail ring targeting homosexuals. He hires gay hustlers who have then mysteriously vanished. His employees have their arms broken if they spill any secrets. The Stonewall is rumored to be the new location for his drug business. His customers were exposed to an outbreak of hepatitis as the glasses are all cleaned by just dunking them in a tub of dirty water. There are no fire exits, which will soon be to the disadvantage of the police when they're trapped in the bar. Black paint was slapped on the walls after the last fire. The whole business was thrown up cheap and fast for a quick profit. Inspector Pine and his team are there to shut down the mafia's business. Trans women, gay men, lesbians, all sorts of queer people who can only find safety in a run-down dump like the Stonewall Their presence is one of the many reasons the police want to shut down this bar. And when they fight back in the Stonewall riots, they're not just retaliating against the corrupt police who take the payoffs, they're fighting against a system that forces them into the middle of a game played by the police and the mob. We don't deserve for our bars to be raided and shut down, and we don't deserve to only have the option of drinking and working in these cesspools. It's hot, the hottest June 28th on record in New York City, 1.15 a.m. Inspector Pine can't wait for his officers inside any longer. He leads his team to the front door of the stone wall and bangs, yelling, Police! We're taking the place! The doorman slowly turns the locks as he brings the lights up in the bar, a code for their patrons to stop dancing and touching, which is illegal. Everyone stops dancing. Sylvia Rivera looks around as the cops storm in. Bartenders grab the mafia's cash for safekeeping from the police, who usually steal it all in a raid. And today, we're going to hear from the Stonewall's newest bartender, who watched as Inspector Pine's team of police lined everybody up for routine harassment and called for a car to take gay and transgender people to jail. Tree was a brand new bartender at the Stonewall, and he still works there today. This episode is a live interview of Tree at Sidetrack by historian Owen Keenan. Keenan is the author of Dugan's Bistro and The Legend of the Bearded Lady, a fabulous book about 1970s Chicago gay bars. Please check it out. And he's the co-author of the books on Bernita Gray, Chuck Renslow, Jim Flint, all Chicago gay legends. Heads up, you will hear some outdated identifying terms from our speaker who is speaking in the context of the time, terms used during the Stonewall riots of 1969. 
This special event was recorded at Sidetrack in front of a live audience. Much like Outspoken, today's storyteller speaks from their unique perspective, and their views do not represent those of other speakers, the hosts, Outspoken, or Sidetrack. Um, well, first of all, you're from You'll Brooklyn. No? no. <laughs> I'm very excited. Um, <laughs> so you're originally from Brooklyn and started coming over to uh, Greenwich Village in the 60s. Why don't you tell me about what that sort of was well, like at the time? I was born in Brooklyn, and uh, in Brooklyn in the 40s and 50s, I used to watch television, and I saw what villages looked like in the movies, so one day I went, took the train to West 4th Street in the village, and I expected a village. <laughs> swear, I'm looking around, I stopped this man, I go, excuse me, sir, where's Greenwich Village? He goes, you're in it. I was so disappointed because in the movies it was a village. I thought I'd see people making pottery and, you know, that's how dense people are from Brooklyn. So I was walking up and down the street and I saw two very obviously people walking down the street and I just followed them about four or five blocks and I went into this restaurant called Mama's Chick and Ribs and I looked in the window and I saw a lot of people near that, obviously gay door. I knew they were gay. So I went in, I sat at the counter, and I started talking to the waiter, Jerry, and he introduced me to other people. And the next thing I know is every weekend, because most people were bridge and tunnel, Brooklyn, Queens, Staten Island, on weekends only. And I wound up going there all the time, and then we'd just uh, go to the Stonewall to dance. We'd, we'd sit in there and hang out until 7 in the morning, and then we'd go to Stonewall, and we'd knock on a door, and Frankie Shades would let us in, and we danced. Our friends that worked there, Mario, we called him Mae West, and jo Johnny Marino, they told us don't drink the liquor because they put water in the gin, vodka, uh, rye, and everything was brown liquor or white water, and they don't know what was what. <laughs> because remember, it was owned by, the, owned by the mafia. It was owned by a guy named Harry the Horse, Frankie Shades. The guy in the door was Frankie, uh, Frankie Shades, and it was Tony the Tuna who was the bouncer. And uh, we'd go in and we'd dance. We did the line dances, like the, the Stroll and the Madison. We did the Cha-Cha Mambo. We did all the dance. We touched each other every dance. And we danced to a jukebox where the songs lasted three minutes. Now you go on a dance floor for two and a half hours to the same song by yourself. That's, <laughs> that, that's, that's just like locking yourself in a house one night and doing the same thing. <laughs> I don't do that anymore, my hand falls asleep. <laughs> so we go to Mama's Chicken Rib, we hang out, and one day I said to the waiter, Mark, we called him Erica, I said, can I, can I have a cup of coffee? He says, go get it, I got it. He says, make, make two more, I did. Next thing I know, I worked there six years. <laughs> and that was what a great experience, it was a little old lady that owned it. And she, ne she would say, my boys are no like that. My boys are good boys. They don't do this. They don't do this. <laughs> we did that. <laughs> In that place, too. <laughs> Actually, we even put a glory hole from the men's room to the ladies' room. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that was my experience coming into the village, learning life that Greenwich Village was a part of the city and not a village. <laughs> That's an answer, all right. So tell me a little bit about some of the rules in the bars in New York at the time, like the clothing rule, things like that. Well, clothing rule was different. Most bars had big mirrors because it was against the law to serve known homosexuals. 
So you had to talk to the person through the mirror behind you. You were not allowed to sit sideways, toss to you. were not allowed to send a person you didn't know a drink, or they threw you out. Uh, because the cops were watching everything. Uh, they raided the bars regularly. If you didn't pay the police off after a couple of weeks, they raided you. And we'd uh, spend the night in jail. They put us all in a big bullpen. And every once in a while, they'd notice a man in a suit, shirt and tie, was sitting to pee, and they had to get a matron because it was a lesbian. And they had to bring the woman over to the other side of the, the jail. And we'd go before a judge in the morning. He would say, you wasted my time, go home. Or another judge would say, you're a bunch of perverts, $20 fine. Now, in the 50s and 60s, $20 was a lot of money. So the mafia sent their lawyer down, Enid the Hat Girling, because <laughs> she wore crazy hats. She was only five foot tall. <laughs> and she would pay the bill, and we'd all go back to the bar the very next day. We couldn't figure out how like a eight, $900 fine became $100 until she died at 92 and we read her biography. She was having sex with the judge, the DA, every lawyer, bathrooms, hallways, on top of desks, and that's how she got all her gay clients off. But we went, we loved dancing with each other. It wasn't an exclusive gay uh, for men. We had lesbians, I don't know if you know what the word is, we had lesbians and fag hags. We had African Americans, we had a little of everybody there, drag queens. In fact, Sylvia Rear, when I met her, was a drag queen, not a And Marsha B. Johnson was a street kid. In bad weather, they let her in the bar, she had no money. But we always danced with each other, and we had, uh, it was fun. The slow dance was called the grind. If you did it with a girl, you were straight. If you did it with a guy, it was like having sex, standing up, completely dressed. You knew more about that man in one dance than you did laying in bed with him for three hours. I mean, that's how close, you were so close to him, you were behind him almost. And we enjoyed that, it was so much fun. We'd pass the police on the street, because they hated us, and somebody would say, hey, Tree, does your father work? I'd go, no, he's a cop. <clears throat> Tree, what's a penny made out of? Dirty copper. <laughs> And they stare at us, they hated us. Our nicknames for the police were Lily Law, Betty Badge, Patty Patrol. So if we passed a bunch of cops, somebody would say, is Betty going to party for Patty tomorrow night? And we'd walk past them, or we'd do the conga line right up Christopher Street, or as we turned the corner, we rolled up our, our jeans, we'd start singing, we are the village girls, we wear our hair in curls, we wear our dungarees way up above our knees, and we start doing a can-can. And the cops, you could see them grabbing their nightsticks, ready to start swinging, but we walked fast. And we went to Stonewall, knocked on the door, went in. When we got bored of dancing, we went right back to Mama's Chicken Ribs. Wow. <laughs> wow. Um, and you, there were also, I've heard about in New York, that a lot of uh, the gay bars were trying to pass themselves off as private clubs, so they would have a guest book. Oh yeah. When you came in. When Why you went you in Stonewall, oh, that, that was fun. We walk in this door and Fat Tony was always at the door. I'd sign the book. Now nobody had ID, there was no draft. So my name was Fenwick Fingernail. And I would write that all the time. I really wanted to be Ferdinand Fukalaka, but I couldn't spell it. So I became Fenwick Fingernail. My friend would sign Donna Bella Beads, Georgie Wolf Girl, Queen Elizabeth II, Mary Dugan. <laughs> and when they raided the bar, the bar, the cop would say, all right, girls, line up. We'd line up, 
He never even looked up when we said our name. He just kept writing it. Some nights they'd say, all right, everybody out, because the, the owner shook his hand with an envelope, and it was over. But we, it was trying to be a private club, but the cops didn't like it, the fact that they didn't get paid. It was called Brown Bag Friday. Every Friday, a brown bag would be waiting for the cop. They'd open up the trunk, throw it in, and they'd go back to the precinct and split it up. That's how bars, they didn't raid bars because we were gay. They couldn't care less. They raided bars for money. Well, I was gonna ask that about, so if the bars were all mafia owned, it was much more focused on sort of a hit against the mafia maybe than against... Uh, no, not against them either because they were paying them off. Just money. It was okay. just money. Okay. The mafia knew we had money long before Macy's and American Express. <laughs> and, they, and they wanted it. Honestly, the straight bar next door to Stonewall was charging 15 cents for a draft beer. The mafia was charging you 50 cents for a can of beer, plus you had to pay a dollar during the week and a two dollars on a weekend just to get in. That was like twenty dollars. The dress code was, I dressed in jeans and a shirt. Okay. Most people, like the, the lesbians, some had dresses, most of them had shirts on, plaid. Uh, <laughs> and it was very mixed. We had a lot of wonderful people I miss. In fact, uh, there's a couple of friends here that are from New York, my friend Jim and Dale, they live here now, Joe Dale and Jim Fitz. Um, some of my friends from the Imperial Court of Chicago were here, uh, people I love, and a couple of strangers. I'm in room 12, 13, never mind. I don't kiss on the first date. So let's Swallow, maybe. Let, let's go right to uh, June 28, 1969. So you're, you're at the Stonewall, you're dancing with your friends. Why don't you uh, paint the scene? What's the interior look like? What sort of stuff did they have on the jukebox? What sort of the composite of the crowd? Well, the place was a burnt out shell called Bonnie Stonewall Inn. The mafia came in, painted floor, wall, ceiling black, opened up the doors as a bar. And uh, the 27th going into the 28th, we would we'd go in, you go in one side, sign the book, there was a bar there, a little bar on the other side, there was an arch in the middle of the room, and the other side where we hung out was the dance floor. The windows and doors were painted black because remember it was against the law to have a gay bar so you couldn't see in and nobody knew. And we were dancing in there. We were doing the Lindy Hop, which is like a jitterbug, my friend Frankie Bubbles and I. Everybody had nicknames when we heard screams. And we said another raid because we heard uh, Gypsy, a little Puerto Rican drag queen that wore opera gloves and a hat with a veil all time, <laughs> screaming, my husband's a cop, don't touch me. <laughs> but we did not know it was the vice squad and police headquarters after the mafia bosses, laundering money, no liquor licenses, and they came in nasty. Instead of like the other cops line up girls, they threw drugs on the floor, said step on that, that's yours, and they pushed the wrong person. This very handsome man with a beautiful mustache they pushed him against the wall, and it happened to be a lesbian, a very handsome man with a mustache, <laughs> named Stormy de la Vere. If you look her up, she's wonderful. And it took two cops to pull her off the cop. She was beating the hell out of him. In fact, she worked at lesbian bars as a bouncer until she was 88 years old. <laughs> and as, as they're fighting and wrestling, and the cops are pushing, and, and the juke's box going, we danced uh, the stroll, we did the Lindy, uh, Bristol Stomp, we danced slow dances to Johnny Mathis, 
We even danced to Edith Piaf's My Lord. We, you know, was, we had a lot of fun, but that night as they were screaming, Charlie, the neighborhood cop, came in, even though he was part of the sixth precinct, and he saw a bunch of us there, and he went like this, because they were all in pushing and start fighting with people and trying to catch the liquor, and my, about five of us, including a priest, snuck out behind Charlie, Father Gregory, and he let us out, and that he saved our lives. But uh, as the mayhem went on in there, we're outside listening to it all, and outside were paddy wagons, police cars, uh, and according to history, there's a stonewall car. That's according to history of the person who says there was a stonewall car. <laughs> there was no stonewall car. How could a 1970 be a stonewall car if it's 1969? So uh, out, it was only that out there. And as they were arresting people, we noticed one of the paddy wagons was like this. We hit the lock, the door opened this much, and everybody escaped. And all the stores and neighbors on that block let the kids hide in their hallways and wouldn't let the cops rearrest them. And that's 1969. <laughs> and all of a sudden, we're laughing. We heard a crash, and somebody threw they say a high heel broke the window. A high heel could never break a window. <laughs> it was a rock, and according to history, Marsha P. Johnson was supposed to throw it, but if you see her later life, she admitted she didn't get there till the riot was almost over, <laughs> and she did not throw the rock. And to this day, nobody really knows who threw the rock. But two people actually took a parking meter and did this until it came out of the ground, concrete and all, and used it as a battering ram to get to the police. We knocked the doors in, they did at least. And we were breaking all the windows in the place and in the movie Stonewall, if you saw it, which is the worst piece of crap, <laughs> there's squirting lighter fluid through doors. Do you know anybody in your life that carried lighter fluid? No. <laughs> we lit the garbage cans in the neighborhood and threw them through the open window to burn the place down with the police in it. Inside was Fat Tony, Mario Mae West, couple of drag queens, couple of lesbians in men's suits, and remember in those days, if you didn't have three articles of your own clothing underneath that, you went to jail for conspiracy. Now they thought women dressed as men wanted to pick up women and rob and vice versa. And there were a couple of no, uh, regular people in there, and we set the bar on fire. And that's when the sixth precinct who kept saying, we're busy, we're busy, we're busy, had to come and help the police. Well, you, you're not allowed to burn a bar down with the police in it. And we saw, when we saw, the, we saw the riot squad coming, we said, uh-oh, and we were by the other entrance, so we ran back to Mama's Chicken Rib and swore we were there all night long, but the cops never came in. The ones that were hurt with broken fingers from protecting themselves, they all went to Washington Square Park where everybody was taking care of each other, and the only people that came to help the gay community, and they marched every gay pride today, were the Quakers. They came, took the people that were hurt, and they're in every gay pride parade. And uh, so is Sage, and I mean, now parades are wild, wonderful. We had the greatest uh, marshals that marched with them, and I'm very proud that I was there that night, and I'm proud that I'm still working there. <laughs> um, so, You've been arrested about a dozen times. Maybe what, a little more. Maybe a few more. Was, had you ever been a part of anything that would even approach this level of um, Well, as I said, they arrested us. They just threw us in the bullpen. They never took out fingerprints. So, no, okay. 
So it was just a simple payoff, that was it? And we come back to the bar. Okay. So going back to Stonewall, with that evening and the riots afterwards, how much going on outside did things grow over the period of days for the riots? Well, it lasted, right there, it right? did last a few, I lived in Chelsea, I just okay. moved into the village about 1968. I'm in my apartment 51 years now. And uh, <laughs> I lost the key. <laughs> and uh, when we went out, it lasted a couple of days, but my friend Frank, my friend Charlie, and including uh, Frankie Bubbles, whose mother was very religious Italian, uh, when we saw anybody with a camera, we ran like hell because I didn't out my mother yet. I was stupid at 16, made a baby, and uh, haven't seen it since we separated. And then I had a lover, a, a roommate, for 22 years until he was killed in a car crash, and my mother knew it was a roommate. And then six years later, I had another roommate, but she got a little suspicious when he was 25 years younger. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, she questioned that, and we took her to Sunday brunch. And she looked, she says, that girl's hair, look at it. That guy's wearing ale polish. This, I go, Ma, it's a gay place. She looked at Patrick, looked at me, looked at Patrick, looked at me, went, oh. <laughs> and that's how my mother found out I was gay. <laughs> and, it, and it just happened to be my birthday, and people were sending me over bottles of champagne and everything. And the piano play was playing dedicating songs to me. But it, it went, Stonewall Riots went on a few more days. And then the following weekend, there's a park right at the end of Christopher Street. There was the woman's home of detention. It was a woman's prison. And the lesbians in there would light their pillows and pillowcases and throw them through the cracks in the windows to irritate us to fight back, attack, you know, attack the police, straight people. So we set a couple of garbage cans on fire. We would go over to straight guys and grope them. <laughs> I always say, we used to walk through the streets, knock a straight guy down, and mess his hair. <laughs> <laughs> so with working at the Stonewall, too, I'm sure you hear all sorts of stuff all the time, from people coming in and from tour groups that go through. What's the biggest misconceptions people have about that night? Marsha B. B. Johnson throwing the rock. A, a high heel broke a window. And that... Uh, uh, that's about it, really, because everything else about it has been written. I would say if you get the book by David Carter Stonewall, he's like 85% closer to what happened that night. Okay. And uh, I, I've read it a few, I'm in it a few times, because he asked me about men's rooms. <laughs> not, that I, not that I knew where they were, but I had a map of them, like a subway map. <laughs> so, the, uh, so the whole... Uh, Judy Garland thing is complete. No, Judy complete. Garland had nothing to do with the Stonewall Rebellion. Okay. Lorna Luft says yes, Liza Minnelli says no. Okay, so Liza's right. Liza was right. <laughs> um, when along the lines did you realize that the Stonewall riots had been such a big deal? How much did the, how much were the effects of, how soon were the effects of it felt after those riots themselves? It actually took a long time because, uh, they, they raided it and closed it. So we went to other gay bars. We went to the Fawn, we went to Chubby Lane Theater, we went to bars that, that we knew about the neighborhood. Remember in the beginning, if you didn't know where a gay bar was, you never went to one. Somebody had to take you there, then you learned about the other ones, because they were so well hidden f 
for the you know for the police raids uh and then years we always said well we were in stonewall when it got raided big deal it took years to realize that it's important because i used to deny when people said were you there then nah we were watching i was in mama's chicken rib but then on the 25th anniversary of stonewall I couldn't stop denying anymore when they saw my picture at the United Nations making a speech about the 25th anniversary <laughs> of Stonewall. And uh, my glasses were like that, I had a mustache. <laughs> and uh, so I, I, I start, had a talk about it. And then when they locked up, they closed the bar, they closed the arch between two, became a bagel nush, Chinese restaurant, luggage store, clothing store, nail salon, bar, restaurant, then it became Stonewall, and now the original name for the last 13 years called Stonewall Inn. Okay. Um, I also have a question about ownership that that might have ha that might have um, been influenced by that. So up to that time, you mentioned the mob open, owning all the gay bars. Was that influence felt directly in ownership? Did bars after that start becoming gay-owned, or did that have a lag time? Well, too? that took a while, because they would walk into a bar and say, you're, doing, you're slow, you got slow business. We're going to make your bar gay and give you 50%. You said no, they broke your arm, and you got 30%. <laughs> if you work for the mafia, when you go into a bar those days, you had to buy a ticket for a drink. You, and when you, if they caught the bartender or a manager reselling that ticket, they broke your arm, they never fired you. You worked like this so everybody knew you stuck for the boys. And if you were good after that, you became a manager of another gay bar. Like at, at Stonewall, it was uh, Harry the Horse and, and Fat Tony. At the Fawn, it was Jake the Taylor and Benny Keys. Uh, they all had those crazy, crazy names. They liked us, they didn't understand us. Uh, they used to call us use fags and use gays. Use is a very Italian word. <laughs> so when did you notice that uh, change in ownership start to happen then? Well, a friend of mine, we called her Pineapple Princess, Mama Jean opened up a restaurant that showed Busby Berkeley movies and they named it after restaurant and they found out a lot of gay people going there. They went in to approach Mama Jean that were now your new partner and she punched one of them and threw them out. But unfortunately, three weeks later, the place went down. They had a habit of doing that, burning the bar down if you don't join in. There was two in Long Island, the Fawn and uh, the Haymarket and the Flame, and it became a flame because there was two different families and each one tried to steal the other one's customers, so they both burned down. It was different times. We enjoyed it. We was having fun. So, so, with, so when the bars start to switch over, in Chicago, when the bars stopped being mob-owned and sort of became gay-owned. That's when bars became centers a lot of times for organization uh, and demonstrations, things like that, really community building. Um, did that, was that the experience in New York at no, all? It took a longer time in New York City because okay. uh, between the, the police needing, uh, wanting money and the politicians that were crooked uh, and the mafia still trying to keep control of everything, but that didn't work long enough. Before you know it, somebody opened up a bar and the window wasn't painted black and people could look in. Like Julius's is the oldest gay bar in the United States. It opened in 1860. And in 1876, people were sitting in that bar reading a newspaper, Custer killed at the Little Bighorn. It was a speakeasy in the 20s. It was a movie star hangout in the 40s. And in 1960, 61, it started going gay. And we started going in, and the straight people in there kept saying, you can come in, but we're not leaving. 
and we became so close with them that we all gave them girl and boy names. And the bartender was a big Irishman with f cops for sons. We called him Margaret. <laughs> and you should see the expression on his kid's face when they come to pick him up. Margaret, can I have another drink? And they'd say, what? Everybody had nicknames. It was, you know, it's, it's fun to do that, you know. I'm sure some of you have nicknames for each other that, you know, you, and you're going to keep it going forever, like I do. Well, in the 90s, you also worked at the Julius. And I meant to ask about this because the Julius is really important because pre-Stonewall, the Mattachine Society went in there to uh, fight the, uh, the rule in New York that uh, out gay people could not be served drinks because they were um, disruptive. Right. So they got dressed in suits, went in there very politely, asked for drinks. They were expecting to be denied, but they weren't denied and got served. That's because uh, Randy Wick and a few of them went in and they were going to demand service and if it wasn't service they were going to act a picket and everything, but then somebody called the bar and told them what was going to happen. So the media who was waiting outside to come in and say, why aren't you serving us? <laughs> the guy said, okay, what would you like? And, uh, <laughs> and it, it, it blew the whole thing, but uh, there's a big picture of it on the stone and uh, Julius's wall of the people coming in. When I worked there, we had to white, white shirts and aprons down to here, and sometimes a garter thing here to make it look like a still a straight bar. But uh, it's now one of the oldest gay bars in America. I worked there from 90 to 95. I drank there from 61 until <laughs> I'm still drinking there. <laughs> and, and in fact, I have a permanent laying place on the floor. <laughs> so. Did people ask about that a lot when you worked there? Would that, would that come up as much as? Not really at Julius's because Julius was just a hangout with a big long mirror because you couldn't, mm. you know, nowadays you could sit anywhere. You could sit on their lap. If a, and, uh, but uh, in those days, everything was supposed to be straight and narrow so you couldn't get arrested. Okay. Um, let's go to June 28th, 1970 for the first Christopher Street March which is a year after Stonewall. Um, a march because they're on the sidewalks and not in the street? Well, it, they were all, uh, we came out of Mama's Chicken and we were walking up Christopher Street. We were gonna go to uh, uh, a bar called, on 14th Street called, uh, not what the hell is the name of it, Barbary Coast, because uh, they had a jukebox of all the 50s doo-wop songs and we sang along, and we saw all our friends lined up with banners and signs, gay, light, free, you know. I said, what are you doing? And they said, we're, mar we're marching up to Central Park. I went, why? And they told me, they said, come on. I said, hell no, that's a long walk. <laughs> you know, I said, what are you, crazy? And they said, no, no tree, we're doing this, we're doing that. Get in the back with everybody. I said, no, there's cameramen over there. I was with Frank and Charlie and the Alabon twins, all the people I hung out with. So we said, all right, we'll tell you what, we'll walk to 14th Street with you. So we walked on 14th Street. As soon as we saw cameras, we walked on the sidewalk. Now it was park cars, traffic, I'm sorry, park cars, the march and traffic. And as they're walking up the street, everybody, including police, fag, queer, dyke, lesbian, and a few other choice names, I don't want to say in, late, in front of you ladies, not her. <laughs> 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 and uh, so we got irritated and I said, let's go to 34th Street, 42nd Street. Next thing we were, up, we were in Central Park and my friend Charlie goes, who's that making a speech up there? I said, I don't know. 
and we came all the way back downtown to the village, and we swore that would be the last of it. We never knew there would be another parade or march. Now it's a parade because it's everything. And uh, we just started relaxing, and now look, it's 50 years later, and I only missed two parades. Once I was in Brazil, and when I'm getting laid, I don't come back. <laughs> and the other day, it was pouring rain, and this is one tree that doesn't like the rain. <laughs> I was going to ask you that. If, if it was something that it was all of a sudden from the very start, this is going to be an annual thing. But you, do you know if they had it planned as an annual thing? That we don't it? know because we just saw everybody lined up. Our friends, strangers. We saw Wiggy. That was a guy that wore horrible wigs. We always called him Wiggy. Okay. And uh, we said, what, you know, we thought it was, they were crazy. And uh, so we, we just joined in for the hell of it and came back down the village. And then years later, they started going up to Fifth, Ave up Fifth Avenue, and then somebody was smart enough to realize once everybody got up there, everybody came back down to the village, so they turned the parade around, and it got bigger and bigger. Last year, it was eight hours. The year before, nine-and-a-half-hour parade. And that's bad because by the time they got to the village, my organizations, nobody was watching the parade anymore because they, they were inside drinking. So with the first parade, do you remember um, any of the chants or any of the posters that well, were? Well, you, know, you know, the normal, we're queer, get used to it, all that stuff. Okay. Because I'm not gay, I'm enchanted. <laughs> <laughs> so I really want to hear, you don't, you don't hear much about the gay end in Central Park. I want to hear what was going on at the Gay Inn. Well, that's uh, it. They were it all after the parade. It, they were all sitting around and, and two guys making a speech I never heard of. What is it like a picnic? Well, eventually, we went, we went up there when we marched and it, got, it was theater people, celebrities, gay friendly people making speeches. Bette Midler would always sing, you have to have friends. Uh, oh, she was very gay. She loved us. I mean, I, I used to go to the Continental Baths. I was the only one dressed. Because this body, nobody wants to look at, even 30 years ago. But uh, all these celebrities would come, and politicians that were starting to be gay-friendly because they needed votes, and they would make speeches, and then they read the names of the people who died of AIDS when AIDS came along, and it got bigger and bigger. And eventually, uh, I stopped going up there because I, I have to come back down to the village again. I never worked on the Gay Pride Day. I was always in the parade or part of it. The street fair years ago was just gay and lesbian bars. Now it's taken over by everybody. They had a dunking booth where you could dunk your favorite waiter or bartender or throw a pie in our faces, which the customers love to do. But then all of a sudden they have started selling different type foods and everything got bigger and bigger. And the people that started Heritage, uh, the street parade, it was taken over by Heritage of Pride. So we were talking earlier, and you never know who's going to walk into the gay bar in Greenwich Village. Um, and you worked in three different ones over the years. On the same so, block. On the same block. So tell my me about some of your... My mom wouldn't let me cross the street by myself. Tell me about some people we may have heard of who walked in. Well, Rock Hudson was one of my favorite customers. He, he tipped good. And he, he called me lanky because I had a waist. And uh, after he drank and drank and drank, he would call me over lanky and slip me some money, and I knew what he wanted. I would go to the payphone and call up all the hustler bars on Times Square because he needed something like that to sit on. <laughs> and 
And now I thank God the people who turned him down are still alive because Rock died. Peter Allen came in all the time. He was married to Liza at one time, one of her butch husbands. And, uh, <laughs> and he wrote a song about the Ninth Circle called Just Ask Me I've Been There because he sees angels and sin there. And we had uh, George Capel, the uh, famous football player, uh, George Maharis from uh, Route 66, whatever it was. You never know who's going to walk in a gay bar. When I worked at Julius's, I had uh, Keen Curtis, who was Mr. Hill on Cheers, Rob Schneider from Saturday Night Live, Curtis Armstrong, who played Booger in all the nerd movies, <laughs> and uh, every once in a while, like one of the female stars of TV show, we look and go hard too, you know. And then uh, Robert Atherton from all the Die Hard movies was always in my bar. He came into a bar I worked that had go-go boys. And I recognized him. He was the newspaper reporter on the, in the Die Hard movies. And I go, oh, I, I loved you in the movies. He goes, oh, is this a gay bar? I wanted to slap him. I said, yeah. I go, yes, it is, sir. I goes, oh, okay. And he orders a drink. If he was straight, he would have left. He ordered a Heineken. 20 minutes later, he comes back. May I have two Heinekens? Ah. And then an hour later, I see him walking out with one of the go-go boys, Tuba, who's from Hungary. I go, Tuba, he's got money. Charge him a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. He wants me. Let's give Brad a big hand now. <laughs> I'll tell you, he's got good taste. He's been saying no to me three days. <laughs> well, I've also heard rumors that the Stonewall Inn is haunted. Have you heard anything about that? No, but some of the girls that work in the upstairs bar every once in a while come running down the stairs and say they just saw somebody. I go up and look. Maybe if you're lucky, they're not going to come to you, but... Megan, one of our co-check girls, always comes down like sh shaking that she saw somebody following her. But I don't know if that's true or not. Okay. But, uh, you know, it's, remember it was, a, it was a stable in the 1800s, and then it became a few other things, and then when it was Bonnie Stonewall Inn, that's where people had wedding receptions and everything, and then it, I have a menu from that from 1934, a five-course lunch was 75 cents. So when people come into the Stonewall now and want to talk to you about all your history that you've had there, what do you usually say to them? What do they want to know? What do you say to them? And how often do you just say, yeah, I, I don't know anything? Well, sometimes it's <laughs> I hate some of my regulars who I love at my heart. Some people will sit down next to them and go, do you know Dre was here that night? And they go, oh, really? What happened that night? And I'm going, I don't know. I wasn't here. <laughs> I'm five deep at the bar. I'm sweating from serving drinks. They grab my hand to try to stop me from to ask me. Normally, I would sit down and tell people from all. We have people you name a city, state, and country that come to our bar now, from all over the world, uh, because now homosexuality is accepted mostly all over the world, and I don't mind doing that. I, you know, especially to younger generations. I lecture in high schools and colleges in New York. On my days off, I go, because the younger generation have no idea what we went through. Schools bring young kids into my bar 14, 15, 16 before we open. 
and I usually talk to them and tell them about the history. These are all kids that are questioning. I love doing it because the younger generation should know what we went through. There are a lot of kids in the gay community that couldn't care less about what happened. They got their lights. They got the lights, the music, they, and they're happy. They don't give a shit what happened in the past. But thank God, there are now high schools and colleges teaching gay history, which I'm very proud of. And I'm, I'm glad they're doing that because it's our history. Everybody should know it. Even, if, even straight people should know gay history because you never know. Cause Years ago, parents threw their children out with the clothes they were wearing from all over the United States. And of course, they ran to the big cities. And nowadays, like last night, I met my, a friend of mine from Alaska here with his friend and his mother. I love it. Now, now in my bar, the younger generation come in and go, Mom, this is Mom, because a lot of kids call me Mom. One or two of them call me Dad. The owners call me Granny. <laughs> Well, not anymore. Now he calls me Nina because he found out that that's granny in Italian. <laughs> and I'm very proud. Oh, moms always have their first drink on the house because I'm proud of the fact that the mom came out with them. And uh, years ago, never. <laughs> One of my kids, Jason, when his father died, he sent me a text that made me cry. It said, Tree, now I only have one dad. And, uh, I, and he tells everybody, this is my dad, and I go, this is my son. And we're very, very close. He's a president of a bank, and he won't give me samples. <laughs> As somebody with, who's, who's worked in bars for decades, what do you think about... You're um, saying I'm old? <laughs> no, no. But as someone who's worked in a bar for decades, what, uh, what does a being in a bar bring to you? I mean, other than money and stuff. I mean, do you still feel a sense of community that, oh, that God, you once yes. did? Oh, God, yes. I love I love meeting people from all over the world. As I was telling Brett the other day, now I'm my second 5,000 friends on Facebook. <laughs> and uh, it's so much fun, because when I was in Italy, I was already 5,000, and all these young kids and the older generation and the people who run the organizations there wanted to friend me. So I, I was Tree Sequoia's Facebook. Now I'm Tree Sequoia dash two. <laughs> and Facebook hasn't found out in Holland or anything, but and I don't want to stop. A guy who wrote the book about Stonewall, it was only photos, he called it a temple in Italy. And I went there and we had a lot of fun. I was made an honorary citizen of Naples and they hung the gay flag outside the council general's office. And now I always say, when people say, what is Stonewall to you? I say, it's like Mecca to the gay people. I mean, they come here to take pictures, they come in. I like the fact that if you came in and you're sitting at bar, first time in New York, first time in a gay bar in America, and I hear an accent, I go, where are you from? And they go, uh, Holland. I go, Hothet. They go, Hoot, I'm saying, hi, how are you? I can do that in like 18 languages now. <laughs> and makes that person that has a little war, a little nervousness, you know, stop slouching, and they smile. And I tell them where to go, I give them maps of the city, I tell people where to eat, straight or gay restaurants, and they always come and thank me the next day, or I get an email, or they call the boss up, or I'm on Yelp so many times, nicely, thank God. <laughs> and, uh, but that's my job. My job is you come in for a drink, and I entertain you by saying, you're from Chicago, and I say, oh, I was there, hung out with Brad, and, 
and all of a sudden I'm making fun of it, and all of a sudden you say, oh, give us one more. That's my job. <laughs> give me one, uh, uh, oh, you want to have one more? You, well, you're not finished yet, I'll, let's have one more. And I've kept you there for three drinks. That's my job, to have fun with you, keep you there, not to the hello, goodbye, you know. And that's what I do best after 51 years. I'm just curious, Tree, what was the song that you were Lindy hopping to? <laughs> this is the It was part. probably like Rock Around the Clock by Bill Haley. And remember, in 1959-60, watching TV, I fell in love with Kenny Rossi on American Bandstand. And I said, I gotta have him, so I talked friends and we went to Philadelphia. We got on Bandstand and he was the only straight one. I'm also just really curious, after the riots, which two days, three days this went on? Yeah. Six well, nights, okay. Weekends, bridge and tunnel. Okay, and, and so, so you're working at the Stonewall, then did the Stonewall reopen? And was it Oh Stonewall? no, it never reopened. It never reopened, okay. Because you can't, you're not allowed to burn down a bar with the police in it. <laughs> Unfortunately. <laughs> New York City had the best police money could buy. <laughs> Hi, a uh, couple, couple quick questions. One is, uh, uh, did the, the gay community at the, in the late 60s relate to uh, music like Motown and the Beatles and stuff like that? And my second uh, question is, do you see still a need for activism today in the, and tomorrow in the gay and lesbian bi trans community? Well, we... We, didn't, we knew Sylvia Rivera, and we knew Marsha B. Johnson, but we didn't understand drag queens like Gigi Duval and Gypsy, because we had our own little group of friends. And we were always afraid that if we were outside on the street, that somebody from our neighborhood would see us talking to them. Now, if you're from Ohio, what the hell's the chance of somebody from Ohio just happen to be walking down Christopher Street? But that was mentally in our mind. And uh, what was the first one about money? Uh, what? Motel. Motel, oh yeah, we danced about Motel, I remember. Uh, in the 70s, I went to a ball called The Alley, and there was a girl named Donna Summer singing for the first time <laughs> in a gay bar, and we thought she was a drag queen. <laughs> it, was, it was a very, very controlled mafia bar that had to close because they found the two owners in the hallway dead. <laughs> what is something that you would want to tell the younger generation that doesn't understand the significance of all that your generation and subsequent generations have done and fought for so that they can have their bright lights and big parties and stuff? Well, it's very hard because if, if you're not interested, you're not interested. I, I've talked to kids at the bar that, you know, they look at me like I'm nuts trying to tell them their history, but then there's the kids that come in with their school teachers, 14, 15, 16, uh, there was one girl, uh, so sweet, 14 years old, when I told her, I always say, when you're 21, you have to sit here. She walked over to me and said, you're gonna see a lot of me, I'm a bisexual. <laughs> I didn't know what to do, slap her or hug her. <laughs> but they're, they're our future. I always tell her, when I'm at a big event, I always say, I'm the past, you're the present, somebody real young is the future, please don't fuck it up. Because they can. 
Hi, Tree. Um, Hi. So you worked at the bar for a little bit of time because it was the third day of your, you know, you were working there. And then it burned down. So you didn't work there for a long time until it reopened, correct? Yes, so I worked at... it's not 50 consecu consecutive years. It's just been... I worked at the Ninth years. Circle 25 years. Then I went to Julius's where they raided and closed the, the Ninth Circle. The owner died and stopped paying off the police. This is the... 90, 80s and 90s, the only reason they paid them off because the back room, the garden area, had tables. One guy was selling quaaludes, another was pot, another was cocaine, and, and there were lines outside, but that's the way they ran it. And when he died, his son refused to play, play the police, so they closed the place. And then I went to Julius's for five years. Then I tried to semi-retire. I went to Brazil for a while, uh, just to count the sand. And... Uh, <laughs> And I got a phone call, come back, I came back, I worked at Stonewall with the junior mafia, Dominic, who couldn't spell mafia. <laughs> and he ran it into the ground by not paying bills. And then when he closed, I was going to ready to retire, but the people from the duplex on the corner of Piano Bar said, we're taking it over to keep the history alive. And Tree, you're the only one we want back. And that's why I'm still there 13 years with them. Thank you so much to Tree. Thank you, Owen, for moderating this today. Thanks for joining us. If you have a sec, please rate and review the podcast on iTunes in order to help us find new listeners. And subscribe now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or any podcast platform. Tree Sequoia was interviewed by historian Owen Keenan and recorded live at Sidetrack on June 5th, 2019. Stage manager, Brad Bailoff. I want to welcome you all to Sidetrack and remind you that uh, 50 years ago tonight, it would have been absolutely illegal for this many homosexuals to gather in the same place. Story collector, Ray Teresi, audiovisual tech, Brian Smith, podcast producer, Devlin Camp. Hey, that's me. If you'd like to hear the story of how the LGBTQ liberation movement began and led to the Stonewall riots, check out my queer history podcast, A Queer Serial. Serial with an S because it's the serialized story of the American gay and trans liberation movement before Stonewall. You can find it wherever you're listening to this. Outspoken takes place the first Tuesday of every month at Sidetrack and is audio recorded in front of a live audience. Sidetrack is dedicated to providing entertainment and hospitality in a respectful, safe, and inclusive space for the LGBTQIA community. Find out more at SidetrackChicago.com. You can also find out more information about Outspoken at SidetrackChicago.com slash OutspokenChicago. Music is by Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com, licensed under Creative Commons 4.0.